Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz and the Seahawks. They come away with a win in the postseason. They beat the Philadelphia Eagles 17-9, the same score as the first time. And here joining me to talk about it, Kenneth Arthur, Managing Editor of Field Goals. Kenneth, how are you doing? I'm good, Brandon. How are you? I am fired up about this win. I, I don't know if uh, if a team outside of a divisional matchup has ever finished with the same score in back-to-back games, but I do know that uh, the Seahawks have a pretty stellar record in Philadelphia. Uh, I pointed out with Michael Kiss talking to Bleeding Green Nation this last week that the last time the Eagles won at home against the Seahawks, Randall Cunningham was quarterback, and, and now that streak continues. Uh-huh. Yeah. They've had uh, some pretty good streaks going under Carroll, you know. I mean, uh, this is what five and zero versus the Eagles, uh, or six and zero. Six and zero, yeah. They were five and zero going into this one. So, um, yeah, there's there's just a little bit of hope there with the uh, uh, the fact that they do that, and then uh, you know, under Pete Carroll, whether it was uh, Washington and I mean New Orleans in 2010 and Washington in 2012, uh, Minnesota in 2015, Detroit in 2016. Uh, doing pretty good in the wild card round, you know, just a loss to the Cowboys. So uh, not to, you, you do have that sense of confidence with uh, Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, but, um, you know, maybe a, a bigger test next weekend. Definitely a big test with the Packers coming up. It's going to be at Lambeau Field and, of course, the Packers coming off a bye. But uh, I, I do want to talk more about that. But let's talk about some of these big moments in this game because I think there's a couple things that, were memorable in particular in this game, at least ones that we'll kind of have a takeaway from. And the big thing to me uh, has to be the fact, you know, Russell Wilson going 18 to 30 for 325 yards, but really it was the guy that he was throwing to, DK Metcalf, 160 yards. He has a 53-yard touchdown, and then he has the play to cap it off at the end of the game. But holy smokes, that touchdown that he had where he caught it over the middle, goes to the ground, gets up, and just has uh, <laughs> puts everything he has to try to get across the goal line. Yeah, it was. It felt like DK Metcalf had a, at least a one play, if not a few this year, that felt like they came close to that happening. And whether or not uh, it was a little bit too far or a little bit too short or just off the fingertips or whatever, uh, this one does work barely. You know, the it was uh, usually you don't see guys get up from that play and, and get a few more yards to score a touchdown uh, because the defenders are close enough to touch them. But uh, it worked out just perfectly for DK to get the separation and um, to make the grab and to be able to get up and, and score the touchdown uh, to really feel the deal so it was um a big huge game for dk metcalf who you know only just turned 22 you know with 21 for most of the season is a massive receiver that you rarely see the likes of actually having success being an nfl receiver it seems like um and certainly for pete carroll for years uh, since you know since you know the beginning probably with 2010 looking for his big receiver to develop and build around. And, and he went out and he tried to do that with Sidney Rice. And he, he, he tried to do that multiple times, taking shots in the draft at certain players. Um, and after it took about a decade, uh, but it feels like DK Metcalf to have 900 yards as a rookie. Um, and then to have this huge game, which is what the uh, rookie record for receiving yards in a playoff game in the modern era. Um, it, it, it definitely goes to show that, if this is what this, you know, it's it's interesting. I've been watching a lot of basketball this week, and you know, people talk about like say Ben Simmons 
who, you know, is a player that a lot of people agree is really, really good. Um, but he's been as good this year, maybe, as he was three years ago as a rookie. And then there's other players who develop. So at this point with DK Metcalf, you know, he's really, really good. In three years, will he be this? Uh, will he be talked about as a top five receiver in the NFL? You know, that's, that's yet to remain to be seen. But when you have these kinds of moments and you maybe still have, it's, it's funny to think how much, how quick people were to rag on DK Metcalf all summer long, including Seahawks fans, make fun of his route running, make fun of videos claiming that he had improved his route running. Well, I don't know anything about route running, man, but I know that uh, he looks pretty good. Yeah, over 900 yards in the regular season, and he's just number two in, in in history for the Seahawks, you know, behind Joey Galloway and his 1,000-yard receiving season. And so when you're in a class of, of receivers just in franchise history that – that puts you above guys like uh, Steve Largent and Doug Baldwin in their rookie season. I mean, that that's pretty impressive. And now to have just a monster game like this, and it's, and it's not just the fact that, you know, he had the touchdown and he had the catch to end it, but it was the moments that some of those catches came in. I, Russell was looking for him on yeah. third down in, in consistently throughout the game. And then in the biggest third down at the end of the game to ice it. Well, I mean, that's the other thing, uh, Brandon, I when I was talking to people about the game beforehand or whatever, it was just like, I mean, this is a two-dimensional offense in terms of uh, at least not maybe it's, it's got two players. I mean, it's got Russell Wilson uh, in terms of the players he can go to. There's just two of them are left, Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, right. you know? Uh, no, no more Josh Gordon, no more Will Disley. Um, you know, nothing really developing from Malik Turner or David Moore to be able to rely on them. Nothing really developing from Jacob Hollister to be more than, you know, maybe he'll make one or two plays a game for you. But, you know, we also see it. It's just they they only have two weapons. So if you're Philadelphia, you know, you can put your best on DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett and those guys, you know, seven of nine targets for DK Metcalf, 160 yards, you said, Tyler Lockett, four of eight targets. Where else is Russell Wilson going to go? You know, off, you know, he can make David Moore made a play today. Um, it was, it, it, for the most part, it, to, to not even have a running game, um, you know, the running backs had 17 carries for 19 yards. I, I told people, like, yeah, I just, I don't know that the Seahawks really can run it this week. Um, the Eagles, uh, a top five uh, run defense, at least. And the Seahawks, no Chris Carson, no Rashad Penny. Um, I don't really need to say no CJ Prosize because, He's not really helping the running game. Right. Um, so, you know, so it's like they weren't going to run it with Travis. They're probably not. You know, it's like I felt like they're not going to be able to run it. So that it's almost people are like, are they going to are they going to run it or are they going to pass? It's like, well, I don't know if they really have a choice. You, you kind of have to put it in Russell Wilson's hands. Um, and sure enough, you know, 30 pass attempts versus 17 rushing attempts by the two running backs. And he made it work. We saw Russell Wilson create plays. Uh, we saw Russell Wilson, you know, escape, make make things happen. And then we saw DK Metcalf also, you know, make things happen and Tyler Lockett. So um, it was pretty phenomenal. Even against a team as banged up as Philadelphia, their defense is still pretty good. The Seahawks offensive line decimated only two weapons to really throw to. And they only scored 17 points. You know, I don't know if they're going to be able to win in Green Bay scoring 17 points, um, but... 
it's pretty amazing to, to get that done today, given the limited resources. It was definitely frustrating that the Seahawks weren't able to put up more points on the day. But at the same time, you know, they're going up against what ended up being backup quarterback Josh McCown trying to get their running game going, too. And it seemed like when they had sustained drives, it was because of uh, their ability to run the football and then pick up some timely penalties and some situations that got them down near the goal line. But the defense doing a pretty good job keeping the Eagles out of the end zone, also stopping them on a couple fourth down plays. So in in terms of the defense, they, they did come up big. It was a little bit of a bummer, though, that, I mean, Carson, Wentz goes down so early in the game and on a play where I'm sure Clowney wasn't trying to do anything. The officials, you know, they looked at the play and because Wentz was a runner in that situation that uh, that uh, they didn't feel like it was worthy of a flag. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't know. When these things happen, fans get emotional and the Eagles fans, I'm sure it's just that emotions of, well, I'm going to believe that the Eagles lost this game because Carson Wentz got injured. And then I'm going to believe that it was a dirty play, but there's nothing really dirty about what I've seen. Um, what's encouraging in general is for the Seahawks to have created a pass rush today, put pressure on uh, whether it was going to be Josh McCown or Carson Wentz. You know, they had seven sacks, and I think that was really encouraging because even in opportunities that they've had previous to this, uh, against what we thought were going to be easier opportunities to rack up sacks. They didn't do it. So uh, today to get seven sacks, he looks next week against Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay. He's not a quarterback that gets sacked a ton. Uh, but this season, you know, when he was sacked three or more times, the Packers averaged 17 points per game. And that was in six games. And then in the other games where he didn't get sacked that many, I don't have the exact calculation because I'm just doing this in my head right now, yeah. but uh, it was like 25, I would say. Mm. So uh, you, with Jadavian Clowney and Jaron Reed, uh, I don't know what the status is of Ziggy Ansah, um, but with those guys, if Quentin Jefferson had two sacks today, Rasheem Green had a sack, if those guys can come together and sack Aaron Rodgers three or four times, it's going to really increase their odds uh, of winning that game in the divisional round. Um, but uh, as far as the Clowney and, and Wentz and, and McCown, uh, I didn't see anything dirty, uh, but uh, without wanting anyone to get injured, it was encouraging to see them put pressure on a quarterback and actually finish plays. It was also frustrating, though, in some of those situations, you know, even when he late in the game, it looked like he was playing with a uh, pulled hamstring or uh, it, he was he was slipping through some pressure in some situations. And I, I was getting frustrated by it. Yeah. I think Josh McCown, he, by being 40, he doesn't exactly have um, a ton of mileage for most quarterbacks who are 40 years old. So maybe, you know, he's feeling a little bit more bright than, say, I don't know, Tom Brady or, or whatever. I don't know. But I know that he was an athletic freak at the Combine in 2002, I, I believe. I read that on Twitter. Mm. Uh, I hate to tell a tale out of school. Um, but from what I understand, he, he's not he's not exactly completely immobile. Uh, and he's, he's, he's been in the NFL for, what, almost 20 years. So uh, that's part of the reason that you have Josh McCown as a backup. Uh, I think he was highly sought after and prized as a backup quarterback for moments like this one. Um, and if you're the Philadelphia Eagles, you know already that you can't go into a playoff scenario or a season 
without a capable backup, without a guy who's able to go in there, um, because Carson Wentz, as we know now, cannot play in the playoffs. There's some sort of, um, you know, demonic curse. So it, it really seems like Josh McCown, in terms of going to a backup, definitely one of the better options to go to. I wouldn't uh, downplay a guy that um, has had some success uh, in, at several different stops. That being said, obviously you would want to play better than against Carson Wentz, I guess, but uh, not as poor as a job as we've seen him do against other backup quarterbacks this season. I, I, had, to, I had to tell you, Kenneth, I, I was a little bit worried when Wentz went out and I'm like, here we go. It's another backup quarterback that's going to, you know, torch this defense somehow and, you know, light a fire under right. the team, you know, just, you know, a lot like we saw from the Eagles in past years, you know, winning with Nick Foles as their backup. So I, I just because Wentz went down, I I mean, I'm sure Eagles fans, it was a little bit demoralizing, but I think a lot of the Seahawks fans were looking at it like, uh oh. Yeah, I don't think that it really changed my opinion on the outcome of the game at all. When you say that the, Eagles are going to Josh McCown. I, it doesn't really change my opinion so much for a single game. I don't think that in Philadelphia's case, nothing against Carson Wentz, but I don't think that he moves the needle a ton um, for them right now in terms of winning or losing compared to Josh McCown just because they already cannot pass the ball. So Wentz's talents were mitigated to begin with for Philadelphia's lack of receiving talent and their inability to pass the ball regardless, um, not to, you know, sort of downplay the effects that quarterbacks can have when they're not throwing the ball. But in that case, we don't even know if Josh McCown might be better suited um, to run Philadelphia's offense without receivers. Like, you don't always have the most talented guy. It doesn't always give you the best chance uh, to win necessarily in each situation. That's not me, like, trying to tell a Philadelphia fan, like, oh, it wasn't a big deal that Carson Wentz got injured or, you know, it was a big deal. Like the Eagles, I think that the Seahawks are in the position that they're in right now going into the divisional round and probably in most part because of Philadelphia's injuries. I mean, if they were the team going into the season, if they were coming into this game with Deshaun Jackson and Alshon Jeffrey at full 100% or even like at 80%, um, it's a completely different game. So Wentz, Jackson, Jeffrey, Darren Sproles, Brandon Brooks, Lane Johnson, um, Zach Ertz at 100%. Like, put all those guys in the game, and I think Philadelphia wins. But since all those other guys were out, I don't think that going from Wentz to, to McCown was necessarily a downgrade. Yeah, we ended up getting the battle of the two most injured teams, it feels like, going into the playoffs. And the Seahawks do move on. They're going to face the Green Bay Packers coming up next. I'll take a break, and we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about this game and look ahead to the game against the Packers coming right up. Joined by Kenneth Arthur of Field Goals, talking about the Seahawks' 17-9 win over the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, you touched a little bit on the running game, Kenneth, and, and the fact that, yeah, Travis Homer, Marshawn Lynch, they combined for just 17 carries, 29 yards, and uh, the average, both those guys shoot only averaging uh, a little over a yard per carry. The, the 
Eagles defense definitely stingy, and it just it almost felt like a waste when uh, when they were running the football into this line because it, it, it and it took you back to last year against the Cowboys, uh, but definitely a different type of game plan this year. They knew they were going to have to throw the ball, they did, and do it with some success. But the one running play I wanted to talk about, Kenneth Marshawn Lynch from five yards out gets in for the touchdown and does it in you know typical Marshawn Lynch fashion. Yeah. It was, you know, Marshawn Lynch finishes the game with six carries for seven yards, but that five-yard touchdown run really felt like what he's here for. You know, it's like there are guys, you know, we talk about, like, say, touchdown vultures or something like that. Well, certain players are are more uh, capable of doing things that may only happen two or three or four times a game. You know, someone like Taysom Hill, we saw with the Saints today, where it's like you don't have Taysom Hill in the game 50 snaps. You don't have Taysom Hill as your quarterback. You don't have Taysom Hill as your starting receiver or starting running back. But, you know, maybe 10 snaps, 15 snaps, whatever Taysom Hill actually got today, when it really comes down to three or four or five plays. I don't think that Marshawn Lynch is at the stage in his career where he's going to be helpful on necessarily 50 snaps or 20 snaps. He might only be helpful in uh, three or four or five situations a game. Last week against the 49ers, we saw how that can be a detriment. You know, like the fourth and one run to Marshawn Lynch didn't work out. Mm-hmm. The uh, goal line play with the delay of game didn't work out because they really felt like a little bit of forcing of a Marshawn Lynch thing. Um, but today, it just seems right. You know, first and goal from the five. It was the same thing they did against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. Again, the Super Bowl, Marshawn Lynch fell a yard short before the next play. This time, looks like he's going to fall a yard short. Spins around, he gets the touchdown. Felt very Marshawny uh, to do that. So in that, that scenario, it was really nice to have Marshawn Lynch. You know, it doesn't seem like Travis Homer scores there, which is not to say that I'm right. You know, who knows? We don't know anything about Travis Homer, uh, but it did feel very much like a thing that Lynch is able to do. Yeah, and Marshawn Lynch even contributing in the passing game in this game. He picked up the one first down on a third and short uh, with Russell throwing him a little toss. He finished uh-huh. the day with uh, two catches for 25 yards. Yeah, how about how about that uh, first down? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was good to see Marshawn. You know, that was a little aspect of his game uh, in the beginning with Seattle for those, you know, three or four years that he was really uh, heavily used in the offense. It was a little bit of his game with Brendan, you know, obviously with the, the relationship with him and Russell Wilson developing uh, the real route and, and all that kind of stuff. He's come up with some really big receiving plays in his career. And, you know, 20 yards, uh, a 20 yard reception, 25 total yards, um, receiving for Marshawn Lynch, a little aspects of his game. And, um, like I said, they need any weapon that they can get at this point. Uh, Marshawn's not really a weapon at this point. You know, Travis Homer, he gets mitigated today, 11 carries for 12 yards. Um, when you're going up against uh, a good run defense, the Seahawks don't have running backs capable. They certainly don't have the offensive line probably capable of creating, you know, a lot of opportunities for running backs, which is why when you have a guy like Marshawn Lynch, who constantly led the league in broken tackles, Chris Carson, who was leading the league, I think, on broken tackles on running plays, then you're going to be in a situation uh, to do that. But the Seahawks aren't in that situation anymore. They've got a couple of weapons. So anything that Marshawn Lynch can do uh, is going to be helpful. Now, next week, uh, I don't want to keep skipping ahead here, but the Packers have a much worse run defense 
than the Philadelphia Eagles. So I think we may get um, a much bigger dose of Homer and Lynch next week, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, big a fan of that game plan CF Twitter will be a fan of. You, you bring up an interesting point because, yeah, looking ahead to that Packers game and even this game plan, I don't know if Seahawks fans were super stoked uh, about it either because there were some moments where they, they went to the run on second down. And I, I feel like part of that is Pete Carroll wanting to manage the game clock a little bit and, and have it be a, a shorter game. And in this situation, I, I think that's what they were going for. And knowing that, you know, the defense was holding up relatively well against, uh, you know, what the Eagles had, not, uh, you know, knowing that they didn't have a ton of weapons on their own end of the field. I mean, Dallas Goddard was there leading receiving target, seven receptions, 73 yards. And they were at, le- at least able to come up with some big stops when they needed to, whether it was at the end of the game on fourth down when, you know, they were trying to go for it on fourth and four and hopefully get a touchdown and maybe a two point conversion in that situation. But uh, I, I'm curious what you thought about the game plan overall against this Eagles team. Well, look, I mean, you're you're talking about the big thing for me is, uh, is that there are game plans that you lay out for, uh, say, the expected scenario. Like you can take um, an average and say, well, Hey, look, it's, it's second and nine or second and 10. So you have to do this every single time because the averages say that the more high successful play is, is say a pass than a run or, you know, the averages say this or that. And you don't make in game decisions based on averages. You know, averages are not the formula model to, to which every single answer comes out as do this. Uh, in my opinion, maybe someone will say, Hey, Ken, you're wrong. You're dumb. You probably, uh, you probably were in freshman math when you were a senior in high school and you probably took five years to get your one math credit in college, which both would be true. But, you know, all that being said, I'm pretty sure that there is not, there is, seems to be this strange spot that analytics is right. That like, that like analytics says that this play was the wrong play to call. And I don't personally believe that. I don't personally believe. I believe in analytics as a tool, um, but I do not personally believe that uh, analytics has solved how to call every play in every situation. And I would resolve that you have to sort of look at the context and the, the pieces within it. And the pieces in this situation, whether or not you would have said that a call on second and 10 or, you know, the game plan here or there was good or bad, I would say you had George Fant, Jamarco Jones, and Joey Hunt going up against Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and one of the best defensive lines in the NFL. You know, and I think in that situation, maybe Brian Schottenheimer and Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson had to mitigate their weaknesses in those matchups and say, like, well, we feel like Russell Wilson will be better protected if we run it here. We feel like we're willing to take a chance that we're going to punt on this drive, or I don't know, like, they were mitigating, they are, I think it is risk aversion, and I think it is mitigating risks and your your factor uh, of uh, turning the ball over, like, they, they're very risk averse to turning the ball over, and I do think that this offense, and Pete Carroll is more willing to play for a punt, which I know a lot of people don't want to hear, 
or, or play for a field goal than it is to take a bigger shot and risk a turnover or something you know far worse uh, than just a punt. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, like I'm not good at evaluating X's and O's and game plans and everything like that. But I do think that if Dwayne Brown and Mike Ayupati were healthy now or if they come back next week, um, I think it allows you to have a different game plan. So much is predicated off of your ability to give your quarterback more time in the pocket or to give your running back more room to run. I think that we can't live in a world where coaches need to be judged on a flawless basis. Right. And this is sort of another point, but it's like if you call 70 plays in a game, you're supposed to be right on 70 of those. Like you're supposed to be right on 100%. What if you were right on 50 of them? Wouldn't that be really like really good? That would be like one of the best coaches probably in the league. Right. Uh, or one of the best days you could have. If you, if you called that many plays and you thought that you got the better of the defense 70% of the time, that would be phenomenal. So I think sometimes uh, we look at it and we say, and rather than go like, oh, so-and-so was right 50 times out of 70, we go, look at them. They were wrong 20 times. Look at this one was wrong, and this one was wrong, and this one was wrong. I think that Seattle didn't play this game to, and I don't think they play any game, and I know that this is also something that upsets some people. I don't think they play any game to win 40 to 10. They want to, they, a 17 to 9 score is probably fine with them as long as they've got more points at the end of the day. So I do agree that I think the game plan maybe more was about clock management, but I don't think that the game plan really mattered that much today because there were so many players injured yeah. uh, for the Eagles and everything like that. It was just, Less strategy and more who's going to, you know, who's going to be luckier. But I don't even think it was luck. The Seahawks really looked better than the Eagles throughout. Um, they just didn't finish a couple drives. Otherwise, this would have been a much bigger difference in score, just like the first meeting, actually. Yeah, and I think uh, luck had its place in this game in a few scenarios. You know, you, Eagles fans point to penalties, but the Seahawks penalized. Holy smokes, 11 penalties for 114 yards, a couple of those big penalties uh, in, in passing situations where uh, McCown was going downfield and they get defensive pass interference. The Eagles only penalized seven for 45 times. And we know the officials have missed one on a, a, a play where they clearly, I think it was Jenkins that, that stepped over the line before the snap. And yeah, that, that went uncalled. But uh, yeah, because I, I can't uh-huh. get through a show without complaining at least one, with, with one officiating call. Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that the, um, you know, for all the uh, things to be mad about in officiating, uh, you know that you could think of not just this season, but for our, I guess for our entire lives. Like this, never this story never changes. There's been people. I mean, it's always the refs are bad. Uh, that's that's a constant narrative. Again, it's another it's another thing of judging uh, referees a hundred percent accuracy. Right. Um, they're not going to do that. Could robots do that? Probably not. You know, these the fact is, like, with these pass interference penalties and stuff, they're not going to allow a system to question their judgment. That's why they're not going to review these pass interference penalties unless the coach forces them to. And then we've shown uh, that the refs aren't willing to overturn their judgment call on a replay unless they, it's so blatantly obvious, uh, and even then not in all every case, uh, that they would that they would have to overturn it and just be like, 
oh, yeah, I guess we didn't see that hand doing that thing. But in today's game, Seahawks and Eagles, I don't remember one thing with the refs that really, as, as opposed to comparing it to a typical game or the playoff game we saw earlier today, like it wasn't too, the, I thought the refs did a fine job. I, yeah, I think that you can look at this game and say that the the outcome probably was what it should have been. And let's go ahead and let's look more ahead to this game coming up against the Green Bay Packers because now we have Russell Wilson and we have Aaron Rodgers going at it once again. But, you know, there's something about this Packers team. I mean, I guess you could say about the Seahawks, too. They're kind of, they've been kind of Jekyll and Hyde throughout the season. But I look at the Packers and and they've been kind of that same way. You know, when their defense shows up, they're they're able to they're they're able to look really good. But then you see games like when they went and played down in Santa Clara and they get blown out by the 49ers. You know, they have both of those types of games in them. And uh, it's it's very weird to to know how to feel about that now going into this game against the Packers, because I'm not sure what team they're going to end up playing. I mean, look, I'm a big Seahawks fan. But I think all that Seahawks Packers does is guarantee there's going to be a pretty mediocre team in the NFC Championship game. <laughs> like, neither, neither of these teams are very strong right now. And at the same time, we are one Vikings upset away from the Seahawks potentially hosting the NFC Championship game if they win, or the, the Packers win and the Vikings win. That's going to be maybe a pretty potentially easy road for uh, Aaron Rodgers to get to his second Super Bowl that you know people thought uh, should have happened many years ago, and Matt Lafleur getting to a Super Bowl in his first year. I think Green Bay, if the Seattle Seahawks had gotten a bye week, pretty much the same as the Packers getting a bye week, we would have been there. Like, man, how lucky, how fortunate for the Seahawks to get a bye week when they probably didn't play as well as um, the Saints and 49ers, and at the same time. You know, I think that's where Green Bay is right now. They're thirteen and three record. It seems so much better than what they actually are, which I know people would say about the Seahawks eleven and five record. So I think these teams are pretty evenly matched. They have two quarterbacks who pretty much do the same thing. Russell Wilson at his age, with his coaching, um, and his current ability, I think he's a lot like Aaron Rodgers, but I think he's better. Obviously I think a lot of people agree with that on the Seahawks side. Um, I think a lot of neutral people agree with that. There are probably a few people who still think that Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback in the league. Um, but overall, I would say uh, the Seahawks have the advantage of quarterback. And I think Green Bay kind of just a hard team to, to figure out. Like you said, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, defensively, they do some things well. They've got these two pass rushers that they signed in the offseason, Darius Smith and Preston Smith, who rack up a lot of sacks. That being said, I kind of they didn't have any pro bowlers on defense, I think. Um, and uh, I think Aaron Rodgers was their only pro bowler at all. And uh, so, it's, oh, David Bakhtiari also yeah. got it. Um, so it's, it's how many teams could be 13-3 and three and have two pro bowlers? And Aaron Rodgers' pro bowl, I don't want to say it's undeserved, but people could probably argue that he's not at that level anymore. Right. Uh, and he's there because he throws four interceptions, and he's Aaron Rodgers. So it's really interesting to, to get a matchup that maybe should have been more like, maybe most of the years would be more like a wild card matchup. You know, if they get through Green Bay, I mean, either they're going to go back to San Francisco and try and, you know, and beat a team that they've beaten once and almost beat twice, or, you know, Miracle City would be hosting the Vikings. Um, but even the fact that they're at this point, yeah, I think 
it's really lucky for Seattle to be getting to the divisional round and instead of facing the Saints or the 49ers, they're facing the Packers. It's really, really fortunate for them to get to that point because I do think on a neutral field, these teams are at most, I mean, the Packers are at best equal. It's kind of funny that we're talking about it in this way, though, Kenneth, because I, I feel the same way. I feel like there's a lot of flawed teams in the NFC, but at the same time, we were going into the playoffs looking at, you know, this idea of, you know, the Seahawks potentially getting in and, and being the fifth seed with 12 wins, you know, if they, if they end up beating the Cardinals in that particular game or, you know, whoever, however things were falling out with the 49ers. I mean, this team beat the 49ers once they lost to the 49ers by about an inch and a half. And, you know, we're talking about the Vikings potentially being able to beat the 49ers next week. So it's and it's a team that just beat the Saints, which I thought was the most complete team in the playoffs. I, the one that one game I was most convinced about this weekend was that the Saints would dominate the Vikings. And instead, that doesn't happen. And I feel like it's kind of just given this whole idea of of who the best teams are in the playoffs. It, it's kind of uh, turned things upside down for me because I, I thought I had a pretty good idea. Yeah. Can you imagine if Seattle's path to the Super Bowl was the Eagles, the Packers, and the Vikings? Yeah. <laughs> Going to Lambeau and getting a win. Uh, there's this connection between Seattle and Green Bay, at least going back to Holmgren Hasselbeck. So it makes for an interesting uh, little contest going on here. Uh, I think the Seahawks are incredibly fortunate for the Vikings to pull off that upset. You know, a Hawk blogger tweeted out earlier this week, like, who would you want to have a good postseason? Who's the most important person to have a good postseason for the Seahawks uh, to get to the Super Bowl? And I said Kirk Cousins. And, you know, he knocked out the Saints. If he can knock out the 49ers, somehow the Seahawks could get through the playoffs without having to face the two best teams in the conference. And I don't care what anyone says uh, about needing to beat the best. Hell, F that. Nobody has ever once looked back at a Super Bowl champion and said, yeah, but who did they beat? Doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Doesn't matter at all. That's why I didn't care about speed. That's why I didn't care about the point differential. That's why I don't care about who they beat or by how many points. If the Seahawks manage to win a Super Bowl as a five seed as a wild card, all the losses go out the window. All the quote unquote poor decisions go out the window. It's all just to focus on the one thing that they did. You know, even at this point. Few people would have predicted at the beginning of the year, uh, I think that the Seahawks would be in the divisional round. They've gone to the point of where I maybe would have expected them to go after all the losses to the roster and the injuries that they've had in the last year. Um, they've gone to that point and beaten it. And I think like at this point, they're kind of playing with house money. I, I'm definitely excited about the season, and yeah, you, you know, you brought up all that stuff—the point differential and all these close games—and I feel like at some point that you know, it's Pete Carroll is just wearing us down as fans, and and I think that's why we start to see some people get agitated with Pete this year, is because with all these close scoring games, all these one score games, I think it's got a, it, the stress. It's it's, uh, it's impacting people a little bit. So uh, I, I can understand some of the frustration, but they've won eight road games with Russell Wilson in the, this year. And no matter how they've done it, uh, that's that's where they are at this point. And now going on to another road game at Lambeau. And yeah, hopefully they they get another home game and it's against the Vikings, but you know what? I, I will take, I, even if it's, uh, if they manage to get to the Super Bowl, I don't, I don't care how they get there. Uh, like you said. 
You know, uh, as you know, this is my this is the end of my time at Field Soul as the managing editor. Maybe I'll come in and then do a few posts. I don't. We don't know exactly how the future looks, but I'm not going to be there. This guy guesses my last game for the Seahawks, and and I think if there was any parting words, I would really just you know pound home because I've I've been there since almost the beginning of the Pete Carroll era at Field Goal. So I've, I've covered almost the entire Pete Carroll era, and it's very it's very near and dear to my heart and the Russell Wilson era. And if anybody is frustrated or tired of um, Pete Carroll winning close games. Find something else to do. Just choose. You don't have to follow sports. Uh, you don't have to follow football. If you like sports, you like competitive uh, nature things, you know, right in the middle of the NBA season. Uh, MLB is coming up. You could choose a, a front runner. You don't have to choose the Mariners. Uh, probably don't want to do that anyway. Uh, but if you have a problem with the Seahawks winning close games and winning games like this one, then I don't think that uh, rooting for teams and stuff like that is good for you because the Seahawks have won a playoff game again, and they are in the playoffs seven times out of eight years with Russell Wilson, eight times out of ten years with Pete Carroll. They've won a playoff game in seven of those eight postseason trips. Uh, they've been to two Super Bowls. They've won one. It's so consistent, and I can say – Every single team in the league, except for the Patriots, is worse off since Pete Carroll took over the Seahawks. And I can say every single team, you want. I don't want to win games by small margins. Okay, well, let's see. Let's talk about all the teams that didn't even win more games than they lost. The Giants, Washington, the Lions, the Falcons, the Bucks, the Panthers, the Cardinals, the Chargers, the Raiders, the Broncos, the Jaguars, the Colts, the Bengals, the Browns the Dolphins, and the Jets. All those teams lost more games than they won this year. The Seahawks haven't lost more games than they've won since 2011, since when they went 7-9. and nine. And then you could look at the teams that went 500. Okay, there was the Dallas Cowboys, who haven't won a Super Bowl since 1995 and uh, fired their head coach and are starting over there and had all these talent and that's not working out for them or the Pittsburgh Steelers who surely have a lot of success uh just as the Seahawks do haven't won a Super Bowl since 2008 and have had plenty of 500 seasons under Mike Tomlin as good as Mike Tomlin is and they have a quarterback who's what 37 years old and probably you know may be finished there they may have to start over from scratch the Chicago Bears are eight and eight they went to the playoffs last year they look like crap again so then you can look at the teams that are in the playoffs, like the Kansas City Chiefs, 12 and 4. Haven't been to the Super Bowl in all these good years they've had. Can't get to the Super Bowl. Will this be the year? I think it will be, or at least they were my pick, but they haven't done that. You know, the Buffalo Bills haven't won a playoff game since 1995. The Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl two years ago. Didn't go to the, you know, knocked out of the playoffs last year, knocked out of the playoffs in the first round at home this year. The New Orleans Saints haven't won a Super Bowl since 2009. Once again, Sean Payton, most overrated coach in the NFL, maybe, um, you know, San Francisco 49ers haven't won a Super Bowl since 1994. And, you know, when they would compete, now they fired their head coach and after Jim Harbaugh, and then they went to Jim Tonsula and Chip Kelly. And so the only teams that I really even would avoid mentioning in this list would be the Patriots and the Ravens. And other than that, the Seahawks, constantly in there and even after they won the Super Bowl 
Bowl. They came back next year, almost won it. Even after they lost the Super Bowl, they came back the next year, won a playoff game, came back the next year, won a playoff game. And here they are two years after that, won another playoff game. The, the Denver Broncos have tanked since winning the Super Bowl. The Eagles have tanked since winning the Super Bowl. I mean, I'm over exaggerating tanks on that one. Uh, you know, the Panthers went to the Super Bowl, they tanked. The Rams went to the Super Bowl, they are 9-7. and seven. So all these teams, I mean, what more do people want? The Seahawks are playing next week. There are eight teams alive for the NFL championship uh, of 2019 or whatever. And the Seahawks, once again, are one of those teams. They are one win over mediocre, as mediocre as them, to be fair, teams for making the final four. With my post, you know what, I'm going to leave my frustrations with people being frustrated about Pete Carroll. And I'll, I'll leave that for the next managing editor and absolve myself of it because this is success. I know that Seahawks fans maybe weren't used to seeing success uh, over the first two and a half decades, three decades of the franchise existing, but this is it. You can't expect to win the Super Bowl every single year. There are different ways to have success. Is there a better way to do it? Is there, you know, the Patriots way? It's kind of hard to win with the Patriots in the way that they do it because the Dolphins and the Jets and the Bills are not the 49ers and the Rams and even some years the Cardinals. So uh, I think that the Seahawks have had an incredible amount of success when and when they're when they're really talented that ends in Super Bowls and when they're not so talented it ends with playoff losses. But it doesn't end with them going three three and thirteen. It doesn't end with them going seven and nine. And that is sort of my my final message, I guess, in terms of frustrations with Pete Carroll. Kenneth, I can't think of a, a better rant for you to to just go out as managing editor on, and I, I don't, I can't even add anything to that. So I really want to thank you for all your time that you've put in at Field Goals, and I, I'm, I know we're going to miss you. The community is going to miss you. All the writers are going to miss you. I, I'm going to miss having you on. I'm hoping you'll come back on once in a while, even though you're going to be covering you know some of those uh, dirty California teams. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm glad that you're you're continuing your work with SB Nation, and but it, it is a bummer that you're going to be leaving us at field goals oh i appreciate it brandon and uh yeah i'm, I'm sad to leave i'm sad to go but uh it's times and uh i know that it's in good hands uh with all the the writers and the, the moderators that were there there now so uh yeah thank you of course i'll come back a big thanks once again to kenneth arthur for coming on the show breaking down the seahawks matchup against the Eagles and looking ahead to that game against the Packers. Fun stuff. Uh, definitely going to miss Kenneth uh, being part of the show. An epic rant on his way out the door. And be sure to give Kenneth a follow on Twitter at KennethArthurS on Twitter and continue to follow along at FieldGoals.com. Lots of articles there to check out. Alistair Corp has one on DK Metcalf's impressive record-breaking playoff debut. Mookie Alexander with the game recap in the comment section blowing up on that one. And we'll be back later on this week. Of course, we'll be doing a show with Clinton Bonner at Clinton Bond, doing three in, three out. Be sure and hashtag your plays from this game. Hashtag 3I3O, and we will try and get those read on the show coming up. So stay tuned, SBNation.com slash NFL podcast to subscribe, and we will talk to you later this week. Go Hawks!